I'm just delighted to be talking tonight with Peter Beinart. Uh, now, Peter looks all of uh, 20 years old, uh, but he's already had just a remarkable career. He's the former uh, uh, editor of The New Republic uh, and is a associate professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. Uh, he's also a, a senior political writer for The Daily Beast uh, and a contributor to Time. Uh, he's the author of The Good Fight and of the book we're going to be talking about tonight, The Icarus Syndrome. So uh, welcome, Peter. <laughs> Peter, I thought that your book, well, this is, this is a very interesting book for, for, for a variety of reasons. I, I'm kind of struck that it, it's unusual that there is a book on international relations and uh, the history of American foreign policy that is in some way, it, it's so personal a book. I mean, in, in a way that this book reflects uh, your, some significant changes or at least an evolution in your thinking about America's place in the world. And I thought we should probably uh, start by just your telling us about that. Uh, how, how, how you got from there to here. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote this book because I kind of hit a, a bit of a brick wall. And um, the brick wall was really called, uh, intellectual brick wall, and that was called the Iraq War. I mean, the, the New Republic, which I edited at the time, supported the Iraq War. Um, I had a whole set of views about America's relationship in the world, uh, relationship with the world that had kind of emerged over the course of my lifetime and kind of culminated in some ways with my belief that this was a good thing to do that I thought would turn out well. Uh, and it turned out not to be a good thing to do. Uh, it didn't turn out well. Uh, and so I felt like I had a real problem in the sense that my job was to write about politics and foreign policy. And I wanted to kind of continue to do that, um, uh, it, despite my mother's hopes that perhaps this might drive me back to law school, um, once uh, her long lost hope. But I really didn't feel that I could actually do that um, unless I kind of came to terms with the set of ideas that I had that had led me to this pretty massive mistake. I just felt that uh, if I tried to sneak away from the experience intellectually, I would be left without a larger worldview that would allow me to kind of have any confidence in my set of views. And so um, the problem was that that was not really, I couldn't really write about myself and uh, write an autobiography of my own set of views because as my wife told me, I'm, I'm not that interesting a character. Um, so um, what I decided to do instead was to write about moments in American history where I think people have been seduced by success. That's really the theme of the book, about the way in which people who see an enormous amount go right in American foreign policy overlearn the lessons uh, and lose the sense of humility and frailty that people might have had at an earlier point. Just like someone who has only seen the stock market go up might gradually decide they've kind of cracked some kind of code and that it will never go down and they'll bet the mortgage. And so for me, the, the joy of writing the history, for me, it's mostly a book of history, was in... Um, in a certain kind of way, trying to think about the way, the way that other people had, had gotten big, big, big things wrong, people much smarter than me, and had tried to, come, tried to come through the experience and grow wiser as a result. So do you think, though, that it's, it's interesting that you said that really kind of what you're talking about is hubris? Because um, 
uh, I could see, say, with your analogy with the stock market, uh, everyone wants to be rich. But uh, there are, uh, if you had tremendous success and tremendous power, um, it, you wouldn't necessarily use it the way America has used it. Do you think, why, why is it that America, well, first, do you, do you agree with that? And why is it that you, do you think America has used its power in the way it has? I think there are a couple of answers to that. I mean, and this duality, I think, runs through the book through American foreign policy. I mean, part of it is that America is a, pow is a country that wants to amass more power. Uh, um, and we're not very different than other countries in that regard. And, and when our military has shown it's capable of defeating other nations, and we've shown that our economy is strong enough to be able to sustain wars, we, and we've shown, we found that there are kind of spaces in the world that, where, um, where, where they're not very well defended, our power has kind of see, has moved to, take, to fill that vacuum. So part of that is just the kind of the very old story of you know, what Paul Kennedy has called kind of imperial overstretch, the way in which countries that find themselves that have a lot of power accumulate a lot of international obligations and commitments just because they can. Uh, and because, um, but I think there's also, it, particularly in the American context, this, this missionary impulse, this, this vision, this idea that, that our domestic political system, our set of values, is one that uh, we should try to export to the world in various different kinds of ways. And uh, so I think that's also an animating feature. It's not only the self-interested lust for power, it's the self-interested lust for power interwoven in kind of complicated ways with this often genuinely felt view that the world will be much better off if people come to see the wisdom of our way of doing things. And you, uh, I, would it be fair to say that you believe or, ha or believed in the past that uh, the world would be better off if, uh, if it came to see that the wisdom of America's way of doing things? And if so, has your thinking about that changed? I suppose um, my thinking about the wisdom of uh, the way America does things very broadly defined, so not, you know, the fact that we have weak labor unions or something, or we don't have a, we don't have a very highly regulated financial industry, but just more broadly that we have a, we have a, a political environment in which people elect their leaders. Uh, we do we have an independent court system. We have independent press. Uh, you can pretty much speak your mind without being sent off to the gulag. That I, I, I am still enough of a, a universalist uh, or an American uh, idealist or whatever you want to call it to believe that actually I do think that is better than uh, less representative political systems. But where I think I've become more chastened is, you know, Fuki, Francis Fukuyama had this line where he said that he was a Marxist, and a lot of the neoconservatives were Leninists, which is to say that Fukuyama believed that history would move in that direction, and that was a good thing. But he had a humility about America's ability to drive the process. Uh, he believed, and, and I guess that's kind of where I've ended up. I, I think that I would, I, I do, for, I do think that would be, a, that's a terrific goal, and I do think we may even be move, still moving in that direction, but I think that our America's ability to kind of speed up the gears of history is something I've become more skeptical about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So where does that leave us, though? I mean, is it just, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because you have many uh, favorable and astute things to say about Ronald Reagan in your book, and that in, uh, that sometimes uh, uh, Reagan is, uh, is, is often uh, uh, cited uh, uh, for his quotation about America's being a city upon a, uh, upon a hill. Uh, and 
often, I think um, Reagan to an extent, and I think some of his critics to an extent, misunderstood that because uh, it's, a, it's, it's a city upon a hill in kind of splendid isolation. It's something for the world to emulate rather than for necessarily something for the United States to go out yeah. and, uh, and impose. Yeah. But if you, if you don't believe, I mean, if you believe mm. generally that sort mm. of liberal democracy is a, is a good thing mm. and that it would be better if mm. there was more sort of um, tolerance mm. and uh, uh, and uh, sort of an open market, uh, both economically and, and, and in terms of ideas. How sort of, uh, is there a way for the United States yeah. to achieve that in its, in, uh, sh should that be a goal of its foreign policy? Yeah, well I think in a strange way, you could argue that most Americans have actually tended to believe that the world would be better off that way. Mm -hmm. The big divide has been between those who believe that the best way for us to actually to foster those goals is simply to be a model. You know, what Walter Russell Mead calls the kind of Jeffersonian view. So basically, America should be the shining, shining city on a hill, a model that people emulate, um, and the force of our example will be the best thing that we can do for the rest of the world, and the degree to which we become an empire that gets involved in all kinds of foreign adventures, we will actually undermine the power of our own model and will be counterproductive to the actual spreading of the American vision. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, and I think there is, uh, there is some real wisdom to that. I mean, I think you saw in the Bush administration in particular the danger that some, some, uh, some of the wisdom in the Jeffersonian idea, because it was America's very militaristic crusading that it really did undermine, I think, the power of our model mm. for lots of people around the world, the power of our model in terms of human rights, but also the power of our model, frankly, simply because no one was minding the store when it came to a whole series of regulatory issues that are now blowing up in our faces and really undermining people's sense of you know, how well America actually, what, you know, what kind of a model America is. So, mm -hmm. um, that, I think that if, when we do fight, when we do fight wars that are genuinely wars that, uh, where American security is directly concerned, uh, like in World War II, for instance, I, I think then uh, it makes all the sense in the world that when we do essentially go forth and occupy other countries and have a role in shaping them, that we would, in Japan or Germany, try to shape them in accordance with our values while being respectful of internal traditions. Um, there are other cases like the wars of the, of the 90s, the Bosnia and Kosovo, where I think you could argue that because the costs to America were so low, generally, these were air wars, not, not, not ground wars, uh, and they were done in alliance with other countries, you could say that, that um, these were acceptable efforts as purely humanitarian missions because basically we were doing them at such a low cost to the American people that they could be sustained. But I think beyond that, I think one has to be very cautious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what do you think, though, about the idea that, say, or the counter-argument would be that uh, people anticipated that, say, the war uh, in Iraq yeah. would be relatively low cost. Yeah. Uh, or the idea, uh, and isn't it always dangerous, yeah. even in a humanitarian yes. intervention, that you know things can spiral out yes. of control, yes. uh, as, as they clearly did with Iraq? Yeah. Uh, I mean, is there, uh, uh, and so where do you, um, uh, 
do you, where do you draw the line in terms of humanitarian intervention, specifically a, a, a direct military response? You know, I was very, very influenced, I think, by a number, like a lot of liberal, so-called liberal hawks in the 90s, by the experience of Bosnia and Kosovo. It was really, in some ways, for me, even a more formative experience than the Gulf War, uh, you know, because um, the, the, the moral questions involved in Bosnia and Kosovo were more searing, and the debate over Bosnia lasted a long time. The Gulf War debate was relatively confined, but the Bosnia debate lasted for years and years and years. And really, the whole Yugoslavia debate lasted almost the entire of the 1990s. So it was really something that you were forced to confront again and again and again. And um, I suppose what I think now that I probably would not have said then is that the first thing one the first thing one should recognize about humanitarian wars wars where you're not really going to be able to make a credible case to the american people that the security of americans is really at risk is that such wars can only be conducted if the costs and risks to America are very, very low. So you can't conduct such wars. You can't expect that you're going to convince Americans to lose a lot of lives in such a war. And you can't probably even expect that you're going to be willing to spend vast amounts of money. So, um, so you have to be very cautious about, uh, about, about such wars. And I think we don't know how Bosnia and Kosovo would have played itself out had they not. You know, one of the important things about Bosnia and Kosovo was that there was a ground component to those wars. It was fought by other people. We had there were nationalist movements with a lot of internal support. First, in the case of the Bosnians and the Croats in the mid 90s, and then in the case of the Kosovo Albanians in the late 90s, who were essentially fighting the war on the ground in our stead. And I think that created an environment where, um, uh, given that they had a lot of local support, maybe it was a reasonable calculation to believe that this could work as a ground war. It never came to it in Kosovo, as it might have, that we would have been forced to go in on the ground. At the time, I probably would have said, yes, go in on the ground. I think in retrospect, I, would have, I, I think that the better part of wisdom would have been to say that the American people would not bear that. But in Iraq, of course, even in the best case scenario, you're talking about a massive commitment of US ground troops and of money, uh, also in an environment where you weren't able to convince many other countries to go along with you. And one of the things that I suggest in the book, it's not you know, unique to me, is that um, America has tended to get in more trouble in wars that we can't convince our closest allies to participate in. That it's not that we necessarily need European countries in order to win the wars, because our military is often so far superior to them, but we need their wisdom to know whether it's winnable or not. So it's like a patient who has, uh, who's going to go in for a high-risk operation. You may not need multiple doctors, but you may want second and third opinions to tell you whether the first doctor can actually do the job at all or whether it's impossible. And I think in that regard, that is also something that divides Kosovo and Bosnia on the one hand, which our European allies basically thought was doable, to Iraq, which most of them thought was not. Right. Although I, I, I would point out in the case yeah. of Kosovo that uh, it was the, the, uh, the, the British commander on the ground uh, uh, leading UN, the, the UN troops who told Wesley Clark, uh, 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 a general famously in favor of humanitarian interventions, that he wasn't going to start World War III for us. Yes. Because, you know, because there was, at, at very briefly... With the Russians. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, you know, sort of yeah. a, uh, now, the, uh, at, now, it's interesting that you bring up European allies, because it, 
uh, it would seem, you know, one of the things that I, that occurred to me in reading your book was that one of the reasons maybe the United States gets into this, uh, uh, into the messes that it sometimes gets into is because we have this really enviable mm. geographic position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, you know, we, we, there are no, and even in American history, even the Second World War, I mean, after all, in the debate leading up to the Second World War, there were people, and I, I think history's proven them wrong, but th there were people who were arguing that there was no direct national, uh, American national security interest involved. Yes. Um, that you, you know, but that our enemies or, uh, Trouble in the rest of the world tends to be separated by these vast oceans. We have this extraordinarily powerful military, as you pointed out. So that when you think about something like threats to American yeah. national interests, you are always kind of thinking about supposition. Mm -hmm. You're always you're 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 thinking about future consequences. Yeah. As say, you know, I think in fairness to 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 President Bush, yeah. uh, that you know that I, one could argue that all right. Saddam probably doesn't have yeah. weapons of mass destruction or at least nuclear, uh, uh, a nuclear program, but am I going to rely on a future American president to step up to the plate and do what has to be done? Is it maybe best to do something now? So isn't one of the, you're always that, to some extent, national security threats are always somewhat theoretical, aren't they? Um, Yes, I mean, I, I think they, they certainly they are compared to countries that share a crowded landmass with lots of historic rivals. I mean, historically, the main fear of the United States has been the, the freedom of the seas. I mean, we've been a trading nation uh, relying on the seas. I mean, in the early part of the 19th century, to be Secretary of the Navy was a much bigger deal in the United States than to be Secretary of War. It was the Navy that really mattered. And our primary concern was to make sure that we could, that we could trade across the oceans. And our big fear was that one land power might dominate Europe or dominate Asia and then basically block us from being able to have these trading relationships, particularly across the seas. The British pretty much did the job for us of keeping those open. And then when Britain got too weak, essentially America stepped in to try to maintain a balance of power in both Europe and Asia that meant that no one country got so powerful that they could start to threaten us on the seas and eventually maybe even threaten us in Latin America. I think that was the kind of traditional way that for a very, very long time, from, you know, really from, from World War I all the way until the end of the Cold War, that Americans thought about their national security, about what were American interests, plus the Gulf, plus the Middle East when oil came along and said, okay, we need a stable supply of oil as well at reasonable prices. I think part of the reason in the post-Cold War era it's been so difficult to have a conversation about what American interests are, is that it's been, maybe it's changing now with China, but imp kind of impossible to imagine that we would ever be threatened, threatened in that traditional way, that there would be ever one rival power that could dominate Europe as the Germans threatened to, the Nazis threatened to, and then the Soviets threatened to, or as Imperial Japan threatened to. So in a way, it's been very hard to draw lines about what parts of the world do matter to us and what parts of the world don't matter to us. I think one of the things that that happened, uh, one of my arguments in the book is that excessive fear is often a product of excessive power. Essentially, if, you're pow if, you, if you've got incredible confidence in your military to solve any problem, then you become like a guy with a hammer who starts looking around for nails. And that in that sense, our decision to invade Iraq wasn't only a product of the fear that we had after 9-11 of terrorism. It was a product of the fact that we had so much confidence in our military after this whole string of military successes going all the way back to Panama in 1989 that we basically believed, well, we don't 
We don't quite know how serious the threat is, but we're pretty sure we can solve this problem at relatively low cost, and why not just do it? And, bes and besides, it'll be good for the people of the region anyway. And I think it was, it was that kind of thinking based on an exaggerated view of American financial and military power that I think led to um, uh, an exaggeration of the potential threat that Saddam represented. Because after all, America had tolerated the Soviet Union and China getting nuclear weapons. So there was a period of time where we were willing to accept that with without going to war. So I think it shows that how, how much things have changed. And do you think that, um, well, let me ask a different question. One of the things I was, I was struck by in your book is that uh, is the sense that uh, I had read it all before. And by that, I mean, it's, that's not true at all. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily uh, sort of astute reading of both of American history, and it's a really deeply historically informed work, and of sort of, uh, and, and of current American policy, but it, you know, it, it is in uh, it, the tradition mm. of George Kennan, mm. uh, Hans Morgenthau, mm -hmm. uh, Fulbright, um, yeah. uh, uh, Ronald Steele, uh, yes. uh, Stillman and Pfaff. Yeah. It seems to be that, um, and yet, so it seems that often after sort of a, a a uh, sort of a, a foreign policy catastrophe, yeah, yeah. these books come out, yeah. and they make extremely yeah, astute yeah, 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 arguments, yeah. but, and a lot of people seem yeah, to go along yeah, with them, yeah. but then something happens. Yeah. So uh, uh, why, I mean, it, it is really interesting, yeah, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you yeah. know, uh, we, 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 uh, that uh, we really, uh, that the Vietnam syndrome yeah. really did become yes. something we put in our past. Yeah. And it seems a lot of the lessons of yes. Vietnam are something we put in our past. Why is it that this is, that this is all uh, sort of a recurring issue yeah. for, for America? Yeah, well, this is part of the problem I guess my book has, because on the one hand, you want your book to, you want you to believe that your book will come along, it will, it will intercede in history and solve all problems so that no one will ever make the stake, same mistakes again because they will have read your book. Um, uh, um, on the other hand, uh, my book is really a story about, uh, about cycles, about the way in which, um, uh, you know, it comes from this, this myth of, of Icarus. So, so Daedalus is the father, they're on the island of Crete, and he fashions these wings. He's a brilliant craftsman. And he says, these wings can take us off the island, uh, but they're made of feathers and wax, so don't fly them too high, because while they can take us off the island, there are limits to what they can do. And Icarus, the son, is so exhilarated by flying that he, he forgets that they, are, that they have limits. He takes them too high. So you have this, this wisdom leading to success, leading to hubris, leading to tragedy. And then, well, Icarus dies. But in the American context, we don't really die as a nation. Often the response is actually a deeper kind of wisdom, a, a recognition of America's limits. And it's in some, time, some, it's some ways it's precisely because that works. Because if we don't go, because we didn't go uh, you know, jaunting off into another Vietnam uh, for a long period after Vietnam. Even under Ronald Reagan, the great hawk, who was very, very cautious about military action, that in some ways we were able to recover as a nation, get our footing again, America's economic strength rebounded, the weaknesses of our enemies in the Soviet Union came, came to the fore, um, and, uh, and over time, the very success led us to lose those inhibitions. So I think um, you're right, that these cycles do repeat themselves, um, although the funny thing is that 
the cycle is a cycle of success leading to hubris. It's a cycle of great power leading to an exaggeration of how much power you have, which is to say hubris is the, the sin of success. If you are a power that goes into deep decline, you lose your empire, your capital is, is destroyed, your cities are bombed, you lose all your money, you go bankrupt, then you have a lot of problems, but hubris is really no longer one of them, uh, which is why you know, hubris might have been a story for European powers in the 19th century, but it really wasn't a big story for France and Britain, particularly, or Spain in the 20th century. And so, in a way, I think one question you could ask about this is, are we still in this series of cycles, which is say America will recover as it recovered in some ways after World War I and recovered after Vietnam? Or are we potentially in a situation where we're not going to have this particular problem again because our relative power is in such secular decline vis-a-vis -vis several other powers that nobody will ever tend to believe that America is as omnipotent as we believed as recently as 2002, 2003? Well, that's a, that, that's a terrific question. Uh, what do you... Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> you should answer what, it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, really, what do you think about that? I mean, in other words... They're, they're kind of they're different. I, I think I think it's fair to say that America is is kind of in a funk now. Mm. Uh, that's uh, somewhat owing to the the difficulties in Iraq and in Afghanistan, for that matter. Probably a lot more owing to the uh, the, the the economy. Yeah. Uh, but um, you know, it, it is interesting that. Paul Kennedy, yeah. who uh, you you studied mm -hmm. with at Yale, uh, uh, he he in the in the 80s mm -hmm. he was forecasting uh, a decline in American yeah. power, and then almost th the timing couldn't have been worse. Mm -hmm. it, I remember he uh, uh, this uh, uh, a professor who wrote a, a very famous book at the time called the. The rise and fall of great powers, and and it was in the United States, of course, was one of these great powers that was, that at least in the in, in, in the popular mind, the the message was was doomed to fall, and then like in the very uh, in the very late 90s, he almost changed his mind and said, no, the United States is such a dominant military power. No power has ever been so strong as the United States is now. This was also the, the time that the American economy was riding high. Uh, I mean, to what extent are these, is this a sort of a law, is this, is this sense of decline, the sense of limits, um, owing to these long-term and irre irreversible um, trends, and to what extent is it just kind of the, the, the national mood, just as the, the national mood right after Vietnam was so pessimistic? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, looking at it right now, it's very easy to project in a kind of straight line way that China and maybe also India and Brazil and a couple other countries will basically, you know, that there's this huge shift from basically from east from from west to east that 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 we're all the lot of the developed countries are looking financially unstable, unable to balance their books, going deeper deeper into debt, and 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 there's more and more kind of there's more and more rising economic power which will eventually be converted perhaps into military and political power by these forces in Asia and in other parts of the developing world. Now, the, the caution from the Kennedy story is that it is, it's worth remembering that in the 1980s, a lot of very, very smart people uh, really believed that Germany and Japan were about to leave America in the dust. 
uh, and it turned out they didn't leave America in the dust. In the 1930s, a lot of smart people believed the Soviet Union and uh, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany were going to leave the United States and the rest of the Depression marooned uh, uh, kind of democratic West in the dust. So to some degree, what you can say is, Panics about American decline, which we've had a lot of in the, in the second half of the 20th century, are not a bad thing, because sometimes they actually force us to um, just try to solve some of our problems and, and, and to stop being so complacent. Um, the other thing about decline, which is tricky, is that it all depends on when you're starting the historical uh, meter, so that if you compare everything to 1945, when everywhere else in the world virtually was on their knees, it's inevitable that America is in economic decline always from 1945, because it was artificial. Even if you compare America to 19, the late 1990s, which was a moment when China's rise was just early on, Russia, oil prices were very low, the Germans and Japanese were in a funk. Again, it's a kind of an artificial comparison. So that's what distorts the decline debate. I suppose what I would say is, I find it kind of hard to imagine that America's military footprint will continue to be as large as it is today, will certainly become larger. One of the things that I think we don't think about enough is just how dramatically America's military footprint expanded after the end of the Cold War. You know what I mean? CENTCOM, which uh, ran the military command that ran the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, didn't even exist when Ronald Reagan came into power. Um, we, didn't, we had virtually no ground presence in the Middle East in the Reagan years. You know, Reagan was this great hawk. It, would have been, it was impossible to imagine we would have ground troops all over Eastern Europe uh, and military bases in Central Asia. These were huge parts of the world that were blocked to us militarily. And then when the Soviet Union kind of receded and, and its clients became, were left to fend for themselves, American power kind of rushed in to fill this vacuum. I think it does seem to me pretty likely that, there, that this, this tide of American military footprint will recede somewhat. But I think that's not the same as saying that American economic power is destined to decline. I think, in fact, it's, you could make a pretty good argument that part of Obama, Barack Obama's central job is to manage that process of military retrenchment to some degree, so to give us the breathing space economically and just in times of in terms of presidential attention, so that we can start to rebuild the American economic model. And um, I think it would be unnecessarily pessimistic to say that there's no possibility that we could have, over time, a resurgence of uh, the dynamism of American capitalism, and that, uh, and that could lead to a, a, some kind of resurgence of American economic power with a smaller military footprint. When you talk about sort of the, the, the need for retrenchment, uh, and uh, I, I, I hate to put you in this position because mm. you're, you're, you're not a foreign policy advisor, uh, but what would you, uh, uh, you, you do, you, here you have American, you, you still have American troops in Iraq, you have American troops in Afghanistan, you have an expanded NATO, you have a huge uh, sort of American uh, global military presence. Uh, I could be still have troops in Okinawa, and uh, you. Uh, how do you? How, what would you, if you were advising the president of the United States, uh, in, in terms of a long-term national security policy, and just also in terms of what are the sort of the the, the threats and challenges yeah. that will confront America? What would you? What is this? What is a strategy that you could fashion that would avoid the uh, sort of the, the, the temptations of uh, of, uh, of Icarus? Um, I think what I would 
start, but this is all really, really politically treacherous uh, stuff. I think it's very difficult to retrench without becoming seen as the symbol of humiliation and decline and weakness, even if Americans themselves are exhausted. Um, but I think the first thing, a very tricky thing that I think Barack Obama has to do, and this is a subject on which my own views have frankly evolved a great deal, I, I think that our conversation about the terrorist threat is still stuck in September 11th, 2001, in many ways. Um, the assumption, if you remember, amongst many, many people on September 12th, 2001, was there are going to be more 9-11s and probably 9-11 plus, 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 maybe with some kind of weapon of mass destruction. Uh, that was the kind of basis for Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine. You know, you do whatever it takes because the threat is so massive. We've now had almost 10 years in which there's not been another 9-11 anywhere, let alone in the United States. We've seen only much smaller kinds of, of, of al-Qaeda jihadist attacks, particularly in the West. And yet we haven't really assimilated that into our public discussion of terrorism much at all. Um, and I, I think um, we haven't come to recognize, I think, that um, that these networks are weaker because they're under so much pressure. And also, and I think this is a fundamental, really, uh, uh, mistake that, that, that George W. Bush made when he kept equating jihadist terrorism to communism and fascism. Communist fascism were powerful political movements because in a certain point in history, in the 30s in particular, many, many smart people all around the world genuinely believed that communism and fascism offered a vision of a more prosperous, more dynamic, even more humane in their vision, vision of society than did the democratic West. No one has ever really believed that about Taliban Afghanistan. People like the people who kind of cheer Al Qaeda cheer it because they hate America, they hate Israel, and they hate their local governments, and they like people who give those guys give us a bloody nose. But there's no vision of there's no political vision that really makes those these movements an ideological threat in the same way. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think what's critically important in laying the groundwork for America to be able to leave Afghanistan and Iraq is to have a, rec a discussion about terrorism which suggests that there will perhaps be more terrorist attacks. But the apocalyptic discussion we have, which in many ways I think is, is kind of the equivalent of the conversation that we were having about, the, about communism in the 1960s, in which the idea of South Vietnam falling to communism was can be considered a, a grave threat to the American mainland, is really out of whack with what we've learned about terrorism in the last decade, just as it was out of line with what we learned about the global communist movement in the first couple of decades of the Cold War. And I think so I would say, I would think that is where I would start. That, you know, there will be lone, what, if you look at the lone wolf attacks in, you know, uh, over Detroit or in, in, in New York City uh, recently, what you're seeing is an Al-Qaeda that can't pull off the multiple simultaneous attacks that were its trademark, but are basically going to one very poorly trained guy. And I think as difficult it is to do in, in an environment where we have Fox News, I think Barack Obama has to continually try to push that conversation away from where it was in, 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 two, in late 2001 so we can have a more sensible conversation about the real, about, about the fact that America can still be relatively secure even if we do withdraw from Afghanistan and Iraq under less than ideal conditions. And that, even though you're leaving uh, sort of the terrorism, sort of the issue of terrorism aside, um, you still have uh, uh, an American military presence yeah. around the globe. Um, uh, 
you see American power, or at least economic power, shifting mm. gradually and, 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 and relatively. Mm. But um, how do you sort of, in, in the next 30 years, yeah. let's say in 30 years, yeah. what, what will America's global, po if, 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 if you were running the show, what would America's global posture resemble? Well, it's, you know, it's hard to say a priori. I mean, there are certain military commitments that the U.S. has that you might say, the costs right now are not very high. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're in, we, have, we have a military alliance uh, called NATO. It doesn't really look like anyone is going, like we're going to have to fight. Uh, it looks very unlikely we're going to have to fight for Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia. Um, we have a military relationship there. Maybe it's played some role in stabilizing those countries and bringing them into, uh, making them stable uh, uh, democracies. I don't think we can, uh, we can push NATO any further because I think that would really risk the possibility that, that our bluff would be called and we would be called on actually having to send American troops from, you know, from, from Chicago to fight on the border of Georgia and Russia, or Ukraine and Russia, which I think would destroy NATO, because it would show, it's actually would be, our bluff would be called, and we would never be willing to ante up, really, for that, for, in that kind of conflict. And maybe the military presence in Japan, at least for the time being, isn't costing us very much. But I think what is really costing us, I think, is two wars that are making it, first of all, just sucking up an enormous amount of the time and attention of the top American policymakers. I think when historians look back at this moment in America, and, and in this whole period, era in American foreign policy, what they will be amazed by is how little public, sophisticated discussion there was about U.S. policy in Asia. I mean, everybody knows, most people believe that policy is shifting, that, that power is shifting towards Asia. There's emerging great power game that's going to be a f phenomenal consequence in Asia, that, 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 that China is growing to some degree at America's expense and is trying to create institutions in Asia that, that we are not a part of, that exclude us. And yet, it's virtually impossible to get a conversation going in journalistic circles in Washington about Asia. Uh, even in policy circles, I think that the, Middle East, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have really crowded those things out so much that it's inhibiting our ability to start thinking intelligently about that. So I think... It's also ma it also makes it virtually impossible to cut the defense budget when one is, one is fighting these wars. So I think those would be two things that I think we could achieve by, by, by uh, moving towards withdrawal uh, over a period of time from Iraq and Afghanistan that would allow us to think more sensibly about the larger strategic picture. Great. Well, uh, we're going to uh, open things up to um, uh, audience questions. But first, I have a question for the audience. Uh, and uh, this is just a, uh, uh, a, uh, a couple of quotations that I found. And uh, so could you tell me, does anyone, can any, does anyone know, what recent American, well, what American president uh, has declared that uh, the president of the United States is the leader of the free world? Uh, who has uh, messianically invoked America's larger purpose in, in, in the world, who has uh, rather smugly said that America is a country uh, that is called uh, by providence to provide visionary leadership in battling immediate evils and promoting ultimate good, uh, who has declared that uh, America has a direct national security interest in seeing its economic, political, and political beliefs take hold in foreign lands, uh, and who has said that, um, uh, rather hubristically, that uh, the security of the American people is inextricably linked to the security of all people. 
Does anyone know what president that would be? Hmm? Who said Obama? You're right, it's Obama. Yeah, Sounds a lot like George, George W. Bush, doesn't it? Uh, no, it was a series of uh, campaign speeches. Uh, hi, my name is Todd Kerner. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are about what I think of as the seminal decision to treat 9-11 as an act of war as opposed to a criminal act and why one decision was better than the other. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think um, part of the problem, I think, is the way in which Americans have come to use the term war, uh, which is a, very much a product of our own experience. I mean, we've kind of developed, we've started to use the word war as kind of a national mobilization against something we really don't like, uh, drugs or poverty or cancer. And so, to some degree, when people talked about war, they were... They were simply talking about the fact that terrorism is a really, really bad thing that we have to kind of mobilize to fight. And it kind of, you know, it conjured images of kind of the way we all came together and rallied during World War II. And I think even that is, you know, in a country that had been bombed a lot, um, it would be very unlikely that anyone would talk about war in that kind of gung-ho and antiseptic a way. So I think that is part of the, was part of the initial problem. I think the other part of the problem was that the Bush administration intellectually was very, very ill-equipped for 9-11 because they had really essentially spent the 1990s arguing that against a group of dem liberals who believed that in a globalized world, non-state actors were becoming m much, much more important, and that was where the new frontier of American security was, the Bush administration, when they came in, basically sped, that's nonsense, uh, that's kind of what, that's global only. The truth is the danger is really old-fashioned states uh, that are going to get missiles that will threaten us. You know, that was the big concern of people like Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney in the 90s was Iran, Iraq, North Korea uh, getting, getting missiles. And so they saw terrorism essentially not as, and Al-Qaeda not really as one of these non-state actors that were operating pretty autonomously, and therefore, uh, but in fact, as simply the product of a series of governments that we don't like, uh, which was a way of making the whole, what happened on 9-11 and the struggle against Al-Qaeda, essentially putting it, kind of cramming it into the Procrustean bed of a kind of conventional war vision, uh, in which basically you invaded some countries, and once you invaded those countries and took away the terrorists sponsors, we wouldn't have much of a problem anymore. And I think that was particularly the problem, those were both, that was a particularly the problem with conceiving this, of, of this as a war, in thinking that we could deal with it in terms of conventional military capacity. And also what the Bush administration was either not really sufficiently attuned to, or they were attuned to it, but they just didn't care, was the way in which a de a declaring a, essentially a permanent war would wreak havoc with American processes of judicial oversight, due process, the rule of law, since we would be on per permanent emergency footing. I mean, the, the important thing is that for the, a lot of people in the Bush administration, they, they remember the Cold War as a real war. In fact, the whole point of the Cold War was that the term was an oxymoron. It's a war that didn't get hot. It's a war we didn't fight. And, and, and it was under those conditions that we were able to have this long, drawn-out, essentially mostly economic and ideological struggle. But basically, they conceived of essentially this endless 
military struggle, and I think what people gradually began to realize was this vision was, uh, would, would distort um, the American system of checks and balances, particularly checks on presidential power, in all kinds of very disturbing ways that the Bush administration either didn't think very much about or simply didn't care very much about. Um, in your piece for the New York Review of Books on the failure of the American Jewish establishment, you point out that the you know, right-hand turn that Israel has taken has actually brought it closer to the brink of existential threat than their enemies have since 67. And likewise, in history, you know, a lot of the empires were brought down by themselves, by overextending, and where you see that playing in, because even in the run-up to Iraq, there was no exit strategy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if there's an analogy between the situation that Israel's found itself in and the situation that America found itself in on the eve of the Iraq War, I think it was um, that both countries became so enamored uh, of their military power, were so unchallenged militarily, that they became, um, it became very seductive to try to solve any difficult problem militarily. You know, kind of cut the Gordian knot by basically essentially bludgeoning your foes militarily. Uh, I think neither Israeli leaders nor American leaders were sufficiently uh, imaginative enough to recognize that in fact their enemies would adapt, that they would not continue to keep fighting conventional wars in which they kept getting routed, but they would learn to play on the weaknesses of democratic societies, bog them down. I mean, Israel, after his own experience in Lebanon in the early 1980s, probably should have been more attuned to that. But I think um, one of the reasons that Israel's diplomacy, I think, has not been as creative and innovative as it could have been, uh, has been that Israel became, got used to essentially uh, relying on its overwhelming military advantage. And now I think, what I hope, is that there's going to be an increased willingness in Israel to say that these military actions have actually not been that effective um, in dealing with our, what are primarily the problems of, of rejectionist, uh, uh, authoritarian, anti-Israeli, even anti-Semitic uh, political movements that, that can't be eradicated militarily, and that Israel, just as the United States, is having to try with difficulty to solve problems now through greater reliance on other means, uh, because we can't simply rely on military force, that Israel will be forced to do the same. Hi, my name is David Ochi. Thank you both for your time today. Uh, the question revolves around the way warfare changes over time. Uh, each war is fought and succeeds or wins through different means, uh, be it through the use of early, you know, early chemical weapons in the early 20th century uh, to the Cold War, where it was it was an ideological and economic battle that was fought using deterrence on the military side. Uh, how do you see modern and new warfares that are going to come out in the next 10 or 20 years? You know. The cyber warfare is the is the big one, and cybersecurity. How do you see that impacting the way we posture ourselves worldwide? Hmm. You know, uh, uh, Ben may have, uh, being a former RAND guy, may have more thoughts on this than me. I, I don't really, um, I, I wouldn't claim to really know uh, how I think cyber war is going to change the American military posture. Uh, what I, I I do think um, is that America still has not really had the debate that we need to have about whether we believe in deterrence. 
um, as you said, deterrence was uh, the consensus strategy, not, not, not uh, uh, during the Cold War. Um, uh, we used it, we, we deterred, we allowed, we allowed Stalin to get, a, to get an atomic weapon, we allowed Mao to get an atomic weapon, atomic weapon and we deterred them. Um, we have this strange situation now in which in June 2002, in a speech at West Point, George W. Bush came along and said, you know what, deterrence doesn't work in the post-Cold War era. Why that was clear, true was never really made very clear at all. I mean, it might have been clear that deterrence wouldn't work against al-Qaeda because these were guys who wanted to die and they had no territory and government to defend, but why you would go from there to saying it couldn't necessarily work against North Korea or Iraq or Iran, particularly because in a strange kind of way, we did end up deterring North Korea, right? We, we, kinda, we didn't stop them from getting some nuclear weapons. We essentially, what are we relying on if not deterrence? But we still, I think just as we are prisoners intellectually of that post 9-11 moment in the terrorism debate, we are still prisoners of it in terms of the deterrence debate. And I think that one of the questions that America is really gonna need to confront, particularly if we fail, I hope we don't fail, but if we fail to use sanctions and diplomacy to keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. We're going to have to talk more openly, it seems to me, about whether we, the conditions under which we still believe that deterrence can apply and what we would need to make deterrence more credible uh, than it might be now. And that's the, the debate, it seems to me, that, that is still remarkably unformed in public discourse in Washington. Do you want to add anything? No, not no. <laughs> Another question to your left over here. Hi, my name is Damian Carroll. Um, I see a lot of uh, parallels between your thesis about uh, hubris and success sort of going too far and too high, and th the old concept of fighting the last war, mm -hmm. where uh, you know you learn the lessons from before and feel like yeah. you can apply those to yeah. what's coming up yeah. next, yeah. Um, and because things change, and as the other gentleman said, every war is different. How, as an intellectual exercise, do you? Sort of stop that cycle. Yeah. Do you uh, do you do you think forward instead of backwards, yeah. and and keep from yeah. allowing past success and failure to to automatically sort of try to translate forward? It's a it's a great question. It's something I tried to wrestle with um, in the introduction of the book, I, and I I think there are a couple things that can be helpful. Not that one can ever be sure in any mathematical way that one's going to get it right, but there are a couple things that I think can be helpful as aids. The first is. It seems to me the more history you know, the broader, the larger kind of storehouse of analogies you may have at your disposal. And I think particularly for Americans, it's very, very valuable to know something about the experience of other great powers. Because other great powers, America simply hasn't had that many defeats. Um, uh, if you, if, you know, it's striking that on the eve of Vietnam, when we went into Vietnam, the French said, de Gaulle said essentially to, um, to Johnson, um, look, we've had some experience with this part of the world. Let, we, we've seen this movie before. It doesn't end well. And essentially, there was no one on the, in, the, in, the, in the Kennedy Johnson administration, except for George Ball, who had been France's lawyer in Washington in the 1950s, who really understood the French experience well enough to recognize that it might have some relevance. The other people didn't really know very much about the French experience in Southeast Asia, and their general view was, well, they're losers, we're winners, so it won't happen again. 
Similarly, Jacques Chirac on the eve of Iraq also essentially tried to say, vis-a-vis -vis France's experience in the Middle East, we've seen this movie before, learn from our hard, you know, our, our, our bitter experience. And again, you had very, very few people in the administration who had any real understanding of those non-American analogies and the way in which analogies of other countries' experience, other great powers' experience in the Middle East or in Asia could be instructive. So I think that's one thing. You know, we, unfortunately, in the United States, basically, when we talk about analogies, we're always ping-ponging between the Munich analogy, right? Hitler, give him an inch, they'll take an arm, fight him early with relentless force, uh, which is favored on the right, and the Vietnam analogy, which is basically uh, get involved anywhere and you'll be sucked into a quagmire and uh, uh, you'll never be able to get out of it. And we, it's remarkable how limited the storehouse of analogies in many ways is. The second thing I think um, can be really valuable, and it's obvious, but is a really deep understanding of, one, of a particular place at a particular moment in time, so that one can understand the way in which it's, fun, it's different than the past experience. So the great example, it seems to me, of someone not being falling prey to analogizing is George Kennan and the Soviet Union. There were a great many Americans who believed, essentially, that fighting Stalin's Soviet Union would be like fighting Hitler's Nazi Germany, which is to say we'd had to go to war against the Germans because there was no point at which we could make them stop short of fighting a war. Um, uh, they, were, they were fundamentally irrational in their, in, their, in their willingness to seize more and more and more territory. Um, and Kennan said no. You know, Kennan spoke Rush, former Russian better than Stalin. He was writing a biography of Chekhov. He had been stationed on Russia's borders several times. He had a deep and intimate knowledge of Russia, uh, its history and politics and culture. And, it, uh, and he said, no, Russian history tells you a different lesson. It suggests, in, and it suggests, in fact, that we can contain the Soviet Union without going to, without going to war, uh, that war is not inevitable. It was an incredibly valuable kind of insight that he had at a time when a lot of people simply assumed that this must be like what that was. And I think that's the kind of thing we need more of, uh, it seems to me, in figuring out the ways in which Afghanistan is unlike Iraq, for instance, or in which our emerging geopolitical conflicts with China will be unlike the Cold War against the Soviet Union, from people who really know the, the circumstances from the ground up. Hi, thanks for this conversation tonight. My name is Barbara Klein, and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about Barack Obama and Afghanistan. We know that in the campaign, he, thought, he said that he thought Afghanistan was a just and noble war, and we should probably go in there. Then he studied it for a long time. He saw the things that we all see in the newspaper, looked like he was trying to think about alternatives, and went in and is... Um, if he's going to follow his generals, he's probably going to continue to surge some more. And I'd like to hear what you think about what's going on there. Um, the Afghanistan um, decision, uh, and, and it, it's, it's really a fascinating story, I think, that um, about the way power is exercised in an administration. Um, I think you're right. I mean, I think Obama had, like many, many people, an initial general view that the war in Afghanistan was just and winnable, um, however winnable was defined. Um, 
That view essentially, then for a long period of time, he and a lot of other people didn't pay a lot of attention to Afghanistan. Um, but it was still valuable to hold that view politically in contrast to the war in Iraq, so that politically you can show that you could show that you weren't a pacifist. And then um, the tragedy is that by the time Obama gets into office, arguably, those conditions that might have been there early on in Afghanistan that would have allowed us to basically come away with some reasonably stable government that was able to uh, come to some kind of political solution uh, at a time when America had much more support in Afghanistan and the government had much more popular support, those conditions had dramatically eroded. And I think Obama found out just how dramatically they had eroded um, uh, when he got into office. Um, but what I think he may not have understood, and this is really a lesson of Vietnam, it's a you know, theme of Halberstam's famous book, The Best and the Brightest, is that the more you get into a military conflict, the more the balance of power shifts from civilians to generals. Um, and the, the more a powerful sense of inertia sets in, in which generals want uh, and, and are in a very powerful position to demand virtually unlimited resources uh, uh, because they can say, you don't, we, you don't want to be the civilian who didn't give us the tools to win the war, who left us on the battlefield without the money and weaponry we needed to actually do the job. And I think if you look, read Jonathan Alter's book, and I think the most interesting thing about Jonathan Alter's book about Obama's first year uh, um, is really the discussion of Afghanistan, in which Alter suggests that actually the military pushed Obama very, very, very hard for an unlimited commitment in Afghanistan, to an unlimited counterinsurgency commitment, uh, uh, basically more troops, more money for as long as it took, and which Obama tried to fight back. At least that's the way the people around Obama wanted Alter to see it. Uh, tried to fight back in a really pretty brutal bureaucratic fight in which there were a lot of leaks to the, to the press in order to try to create this deadline uh, for next year. And so Obama basically saying, look, you have your period, but don't, don't set the goals any higher than what we can achieve in this very limited period. So that was the very uncomfortable, strange policy that Obama ended up with. I think a neither fish nor foul policy in which the idea was we were going to go all in for a very short period of time, try to really push the Taliban back on their heels, then turn around very quickly, start getting out, but having damaged the Taliban so much that they would have to come to the table and come to a political agreement, and so we would have a political solution in Afghanistan. Um, uh, it all does look a bit too clever by half, um, particularly when one thinks about how difficult it is to do anything in Afghanistan quickly in a positive vein, particularly with this kind of government. And I think, I think what we're setting ourselves up for is potentially uh, a remarkable, a fascinating showdown uh, between, if you take Obama at his, at his word in the altar book, between Obama, who genuinely does believe that we are going to start to withdraw troops in the summer of 2010. And if you notice, Gates and other people in the military keep saying, uh, it happened just again and again and again, it just happened last weekend on the Sunday shows, no, it's not really a real deadline, we'll see how things are on the ground, don't take this too seriously. There's clearly a struggle going on within the Obama administration between Obama and Biden and maybe some others on the one hand, and people in the military, uh, maybe with support of Gates and Hillary Clinton on the other. And I think the way it's going to play itself out is going to be one of the really fascinating dramas of, of 2011. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Michael Novick. Um, 
you know, you could say one of the lessons of the Vietnam War was don't fight a land war in Asia. <laughs> and uh, we're currently fighting two land wars in Asia, one in Iraq and Southwest Asia, and one in Afghanistan and Central Asia. And I would submit that uh, one way to look at that and that arc of history that you're talking about, uh, when uh, George Bush defined the axis of evil as North Korea, uh, Iran, and Iraq, is that these wars are actually the precursor to a war with China. That what they're doing is encircling China, that they're trying to deny China access to uh, Iranian and Iraqi oil, that they have uh, put uh, bases across Central Asia, and uh, they're building alliances and creating a military presence directed at China. There is cyber war going on right now. If you read the New York Times, you'll uh, see plenty of accounts of cyber war going on between the U.S. and China currently. So uh, I, I do think that uh, they are very, very aware of China and very, very aware of Asia. And I think this, these two wars in Asia are part of that process. I, I'd appreciate your comments. Um, it's a provocative idea. And I have heard people uh, you know, who know something about the Bush administration suggest that they do believe that, um, uh, you know, that the war in Iraq may have had something to do with sending a signal to China. Um, and I think the story you're telling um, whether it's the story that the Ameri that American policymakers told themselves, and and there's frankly not a lot of evidence so far from the Bush, books, Bushes, the books that have come out of the Bush administration to suggest that that's what being what was being said behind closed doors. It's quite plausible that that might be the way it is seen in part in China, particularly when you add in the fact that America has drawn much closer to India uh, and made a nuclear agreement with India and kind of let India off the hook on the non on the NPT and that kind of thing. But I think. The question you're raising, I think, is the beginning of a really important debate, which is to say, if you do believe that there's going to be some kind of great, that there's going to be a great power competition uh, between the United States and China, and, and more broadly between uh, the United States and, and the uh, whole series of, power, of powers in Asia, of which the United States is one offshore power, was this a very effective strategy vis-a-vis uh, -vis China? And it seems to me, I think it was not a very effective strategy vis-a-vis -vis China at all. And, and the message, it seems to me, the lesson for me is, it would be that the most important element of the growing competition with China is going to be uh, the economic struggle, uh, the, the question of the leverage in the U.S.-China relationship based on the power of our economy and the power of their economy, and more broadly, the attractiveness of our democratic uh, uh, economic model, political and economic model, versus their authoritarian capitalist model. And it seems to me, if you look at the Bush administration in that framework, you have to say that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have not actually helped us very very much in this emerging great power competition with China. They've really weakened us in many ways, helped to push us further and further into debt vis-a-vis -vis China. So I think, um, I think that uh, thinking about what we need to do vis-a-vis -vis China to put ourselves in a stronger position, I mean, it's a cooperative relationship. It's a deeply interdependent relationship. But as the international relations theorists will tell you, power and leverage matter a great deal in interdependent relationships. And I think if we think about it from that point of view, I think we can see that, the, that this effort, if that's what the effort was vis-a-vis -vis China was not a very wise one. One other person who's, my name is Von Bargen. One other person who's been thinking about China is Zach Carabell, of course, who's just written a book recently about fusion, where he actually suggests that China and the United States are joined at the hip and are actually already one super economy. You're probably aware of that already. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
one of the things I had intended to ask you until the subject, we, we, we never had that kind of an arrangement with Russia. So I think the yes. analogies with, our, with, with the yes. Cold War in Russia are, of course, That's dissimilar. Right. That's right. But I wondered the extent to which you think uh, if we do have a rebound economically, as you say, we possibly could happen again, again and become the dominant economic power or even a more dominant one whether transnational or international corporations are going to play a role in that. We see something happening right now with BP, but with companies like ADM and Conagra, petroleum companies, there probably is only one country in the world that can tell them what to do if we get the $20 billion in the escrow account. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether they're going to actually become a power for good, for actually eliminating the possibility for conflict. Excuse me. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you look in broader perspective, um, we have still been, we are still in the midst of an, a quite remarkable period of great power peace. Condoleezza Rice used to talk about this, about one of the defining features of this moment in history is the relatively minimal friction by historical standards between the great powers. And, um, and you, can, you might even argue that historians will look back and say, and see the focus on terrorism as a kind of interlude that people could afford to focus on as the grave threat or even, you know, second and third rate powers like, like Iraq and Iran or uh, uh, North Korea because the elephant in the room was not there, which was uh, to screw up the metaphor, which is to, which is to say that, that there was no great power conflict. If China decided to invade Taiwan tomorrow, uh, all of a sudden that would put Al-Qaeda and even Iran and Afghanistan in a pretty different light uh, in terms of what are the, the, the real global threats. Um, and I think um, we should, history, uh, we have had an experience before of many, many smart people believing that countries that were, were so economically interdependent that they could never go to war with each other. It wasn't, you're right, it was not the U.S. and Soviet Union, but it really was Britain and Germany before World War I. Uh, it was a very common idea, associated people like Norman Angel and others, that basically the economic interdependence of, of Europe, and particularly of Britain and Germany, made war so counterproductive, uh, that it, and, and essentially the idea that national National boundaries were becoming less and less important because you were becoming you were you were essentially becoming part of one globalized economic sphere, at least in Europe. Um, and I think um, we should we should have some uh, modesty about about our view that that's always the way things will be. It seems to me human beings have shown um, uh, a, a great willingness to do things that may seem economically irrational because of considerations of pride and power and honor uh, and nationalism. Uh, and so while um, multinational corporations may look very powerful and states may look less powerful, I think even in the last few years we've seen the resurgence of state power vis-a-vis -vis, uh, truly independent economic power. If you look at the rise of sovereign wealth funds that are controlled by governments, if you look at the, at the return to economic regulation uh, in a lot of parts of the world, including the United States, you look at the way Obama, the Obama administration has taken control uh, uh, of, of large sectors of the American economy, essentially telling corporations what to do, uh, I think you see that the balance is already perhaps shifting away in the, towards power, the power of governments vis-a-vis -vis the power of independent, uh, you know, private entities. I want to go back to the question about American legitimacy and the appeal of American ideas in the world, because quite often when people discuss the conflict in Afghanistan or against al-Qaeda, even some people in the military will say, ultimately, we're not going to win this for military power. We're going to win this by proving our way of life is preferable to that which um, Taliban or al-Qaeda are promoting. And you mentioned this early in your talk, that people don't necessarily like what al-Qaeda is promoting. They just hate the West, hate the US, hate Israel, and hate a lot of what we've done. 
you've talked about how we might rebound economically, how we might rebound or gracefully retrench militarily, but how do you think we might be able to rebuild our the appeal of our soft power, the appeal of our institutions, ideals, way of life? I mean, I mean, for me, the, the kind of one of the tragedies of the Obama administration is that Obama has tried his best to increase American soft power, the appeal of the American, the allure of the American model with the idea that you can convert that into making countries do what we want because they, because they, uh, they like us so much, because they're so attracted, because we have this, this persuasive uh, uh, power. Um, there's no question that a lot of people around the world do like Barack Obama a lot. They certainly like him a lot better than George W. Bush. But I think the problem is that American soft power uh, has not really been, is not, it's never really been based primarily on the popularity of the, of the Oval Office. It's been based more broadly on the appeal of the American political and economic model. In the 1990s, people griped and groaned a lot, but there was this view amongst a lot of people that America represented the end of history, that there was only one path towards a prosperous, modern society. And it was a, a political and economic system that looked roughly like ours and our Western allies, plus the fact that we were the only place you could go to get any money. Uh, if you wanted aid and, and trade, you basically had to go to the IMF and the World Bank and, and the United States Treasury uh, and our allies. And, and I think the decline of American soft power has been about the decline, essentially, of the idea that people believed that our relatively deregulated uh, economic model uh, represented the only viable alternative. You know, it's not, so, you know, the viability of the Chinese alternative is, is not entirely clear, but, but, it, but it has risen at the same time that there's been a dramatic uh, sense of the, of the failure of the American economic model. I mean, even to remember the 1990s when America so self-confidently sent out all our, our investment bankers and our management consultants and our economics professors and our law professors to tell other countries how to, how to deregulate their, their financial systems. I mean, even to, you know, is to, is, to, is to conjure a different time intellectually in some ways than we live in today, in which we're frantically trying to re-regulate our own. Um, and I think ultimately the return of American soft power, I mean, it will have to do with things like Guantanamo Bay and torture and our openness to people from other parts of the world uh, as immigrants and places, people who believe they can come and live comfortably in the United States. That's very important. But I think it also will have a lot to do with whether people believe that America can rebuild an economic model that people believe, uh, yeah, uh, you know, that, that, that people will come to see as, uh, as a good model of a kind of stable, dynamic, and humane uh, economic system. And I think that we are just at the beginning still of trying to rebuild in that regard. Great, thank you. And thanks again, we'll see you at the reception.